Hello and welcome to the Human Rights Pulse podcast. Today I have a very special guest with me, Johar Ilham. She is an author and an activist and the daughter of Uyghur scholar Ilham Dohti. In 2013, her father was detained at Beijing airport by the Chinese authorities as the two of them were preparing to board a flight to the US. I, I, I refused to go and my father said, take the chance. And I would rather you sweep the street in the US than you stay here. He also said, look around you, this country is treating you like this. Do you still want to stay here? At 18 years old, Jua found herself in Indiana alone, whilst her father was sentenced to a life in prison in China on charges of separatism. 20 to 40 detainees can be in one small room and they don't even have a place to sleep. They have to take turns. 20 people stand against the wall and 20 people sleep on the ground next to each other. Both Johar and Ilham Toti are dedicated to improving relations between the Uyghur people and the Han Chinese. Since April 2017, more than one million Uyghurs have been imprisoned in detention camps, so-called re-education camps, where they are forced to give up their ethnic identity and religion and required to swear allegiance to the Chinese regime. They have witnessed rape. Also, they were fed with unknown medicine, refused to, to have water, refused to have food. Unable to return to China, Johar enrolled at the University of Indiana and has advocated for her father since his imprisonment. She has testified before the US Congressional Executive Committee on China, written op-eds at the New York Times, met with a number of US government officials, including the former Secretary of State, John Kerry, and received numerous awards worldwide on behalf of her father. In 2015, she recounted her experiences in the book, Johar Ilham, A Uyghur's Fight to Free Her Father. Thank you so much for joining us today, Johar. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Aksa. Perhaps maybe we could start with speaking about what the situation of the Uyghur people is and the struggles that they are facing. Yeah, first I'd like to do a little bit introduction of who the Uyghurs are. So Uyghurs are... Um, Turkic uh, ethnic minority group. Um, majority of us will live in west part of China. Um, in Chinese, it's called Xinjiang, and um, I, re I prefer referring as referring our region as Uyghur region. Uyghurs speak Uyghur language. Uh, it's a very different language compared to Chinese. It's a Turkic language, and we use Arabic script. Um, and also, majority of the Uyghur population are Sunni Muslims. Uh, for uh, for a long time, we practice Islam, um, but uh, because China is an atheist state, Uyghurs have been having issues uh, with the government due to their religion, due to the culture, and just basically the difference have led lots of problems between the Chinese government with the Uyghur people. Right. How long has this been going on for? To be honest, it's been happening for quite a long time. Um, sometimes things get good. It depends on who's in charge in the government and then sometimes get really bad. And since 2014, I would say the situation have gone really downhill. It got worse and worse. Uh, it's very shocking for Uyghurs too, even though we've been suppressed for quite a long time, but the current treatment that we've been receiving, uh, we've been facing by the Chinese government, it's still quite surprising for uh, for the Uyghur people nowadays. Um, the level of oppression that we face, it's 
I have to say it's unbearable now. Is this happening to any other group in China that you're aware of, or is it isolated to the Uyghurs? Uh, uh, it's actually not only happening towards the Uyghur people. It also happens with other ethnic minority groups like Tibetans, and uh, uh, it also um, sometimes affects the Hui minorities. It's another uh, Muslim minority. Uh, also, Mongol ethnic minority groups in China um, they all faced a certain level of either discrimination or oppression by the Chinese government. Maybe uh, if if you're okay with it, can you tell us a bit about your story? I mentioned it in the intro about your father and such, but uh, I think it would be really powerful to, to hear it from you. Sure. Um, seven years ago, on February 2nd, 2013, my father and I, we were at the Beijing International Airport and that was the last time I saw my father in person. Um, I was uh, planning to accompany my father to come to the U.S. Uh, he was invited as a visiting scholar by uh, Indiana University. I was just planning to accompany him, and I planned to stay in the U.S. for three weeks to one month just to help him settle down and maybe do a little traveling. But my father was arrested at the airport. We were arrested uh, together at the same time. But because I was a teenager, I guess the Chinese government considered me as no threat. Um, mm -hmm. So they allowed me leave. I refused to leave uh, in the beginning, but my father insisted that I should go. He pushed me away and said I should take the chance and leave the country. So were you confronted by police at the airport? Is that? Yes, yes. We were we were locked in a small room, um, even though we arrived six hours before our departing time. Um, our flight was supposed to leave at 10 a.m., but we left for the airport at 3 a.m. because we thought if we leave in the middle of the night, there will be no police following us, which it, which which that was true. Nobody was following us until we got to the airport. We checked our bags. We got our boarding pass. Everything was so smooth. Everything was so successful until we, we were at the border control. Um, my father and I, we were at different lanes. My lane went really fast, but it took so long for my dad to get his passport scanned. Um, the The staff made a phone call, and soon after, there were a few security showed up with a black uniform uh, and tried to take my father away. I I didn't know what was happening, so I followed them. They realized I was my dad's um, daughter, so they asked me to go with them together, and we were arrested in, in a small room together. Until 30 minutes before our flight, uh, the staff who made the phone call in the beginning showed up again with my passport and told me I'm allowed to leave if I want to. And that was a difficult moment for me. I, I, I refused to go and my father said, take the chance. And I would rather you sweep the street in the US than you stay here. He also said, look around you, this country is treating you like this. Do you still want to stay here? still didn't make sense to me because I was a silly teenager who just wants to be with her family and who never been away from her family. Also, I didn't speak English at that time. I didn't have any money. I didn't know anybody. For me, it didn't make sense to come to the U.S. alone. But my father insisted, and that's probably the best decision he had ever, ever made for me. Yeah. What, what happened to your father then? So you boarded the plane, I imagine. What happened to him? Um, I didn't know what happened to him until three days after. 
after I arrived in the US, uh, we were finally able to communicate uh, through Skype. So he was released uh, three days after and he started his house arrest time for over 11 months until the next year, 2014, January 15th, he was taken away from our apartment in Beijing. Um, my father was actually taking a nap with my two little brothers um, at home. And there were more than 20 policemen broke into our apartment and took my father away in front of my two little brothers. Where was the rest of your family? Where was your mother? And um, My stepmom was at work. Um, my father was not allowed to teach. He was a professor. Um, he was not allowed to teach during his uh, house arrest time. So he was staying home with my brothers most of the time. And my grandma was out having a walk. So only my two little brothers and my father was at home taking a nap. Then the neighbors after they, they, they heard my brothers crying and, and they saw my two little brothers were left at home, they called my stepmom and my stepmom rushed back home. And that's how we later found out that what happened to my dad. Um, she tried to reach out to the journalists to, to, to tell them what happened to my father. And that's how I heard about what happened to my father through the news. Um, it's, it's frustrating because most of the people nowadays, if you want to know how your parents are doing, how your family members are doing, you just make a phone call or you just go back home to see them in person. But I had to find out what happened to my family on the news. I had to Google my father's name, Ilham Tohti, every single day, every single day after he was um, taken away, just to just to know if there's any new news um, so I can be informed immediately. Your father was sentenced to life imprisonment after that arrest for alleged separatism. Yes. What does separatism even mean? Um, according to the Chinese uh, term, it means uh, uh, who wants to separate the country, let's say someone who advocates for independence. But also, besides separatism, they also uh, accuse my father for uh, certain different things of being an extremist, being someone who advocates for violence. And those charges, those, those crimes are all nonsense because that's almost the opposite of who my father is. Um, my father was well known in China and in Western countries because of his moderate voice. Um, because he has been trying so hard, so hard to bring peace and harmony and to um, narrow the gap between the Han Chinese group and the Uyghur people. He has been trying so hard to use his knowledge, to use his uh, researches um, to, to, to help the Chinese government, actually. All he was trying to do was just to try to help the Chinese government, providing with even specific details to help them with um, making policies uh, to help develop the Uyghur region. Instead of working with a person like my dad, the government chose to detain my father and sentence him to life. Yeah, so your father taught economics, right? Yes, yes. But he was very into sociology um, and, and law. Right. And, and do you believe the combination of those subjects and, and the way he advocated for this change, is that what led to his arrest? Or did the Chinese authorities believe he had extreme views? What, what, do you know what the reason for his arrest was? 
Well, I don't work in the Chinese government and I don't know anyone who works there. So I can't speak uh, for like on behalf of them. I only have my own assumptions. Uh, first of all, my father was the probably the one and only Uyghur who was able to um, speak out publicly and criticize the government's policies toward the Uyghur people in China. And also uh, he has been contacting the uh, Western media journalists. He created a website called UyghurBiz.com. Um, it's in different languages. And um, those uh, this, this website was designed to uh, help to create a platform for the Uyghurs and Han Chinese to share their thoughts. Anyone could write an article and publish there and comment on it and share pictures and even music. Most of us know. Um, China uh, doesn't allow uh, allow social media apps like Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter uh, in, in China. Also, Google is, is not allowed either. So most of the news and, and information the Chinese citizens have access to is the state-backed media, which is very biased, very limited, uh, and also strongly censored. So my father wanted to provide this platform for the, for the Chinese people uh, that is not censored, um, that only prov it provides all aspects of, of the story. But that's not what the government wanted. Um, the government only wanted their citizens to know their side of the story uh, or the story that they, they, they want the citizens to believe in. And that's not what my father wanted, because if you only hear one side of the story, if you only hear one voice, then you will be biased and you will you will start to have stereotypes. You will have different assumptions. And there has been stereotypes uh, towards the Uyghur people. A lot of Chinese citizens would think uh, Uyghur people, when they think of Uyghurs, they think of pickpockets. Uh, non-educated uh, and, and, and entertainers who those people who know how to dance and sing mm -hmm. um, and they they look uh, exotic they look different and those are the stereotypes and my father wanted to change that um, my father was trying to use this website to let people know oh how beautiful the culture is and why Uyghurs are facing those social problems and why why there are uh, certain problems and what kind of methods and policies can be done to help fix those, solve those problems. Right. And uh, so it's fair to say that his education and his advocacy was essentially used against him. Uh, yes. Has, he, has the website been shut down? In the beginning, my father used the Chinese server. Um, it has been shut down multiple times. So my father um, chose to use, uh, chose to purchase servers in, in America in order to prevent it from being shut down multiple times. Um, it's very expensive to buy servers in, in, in the United States while you live in China. But my father didn't care. And he thought that it's uh, comparing to the money, it's more important to let people uh, have access to the website. But soon after it was shut down again and again and again, and my father just try kept trying to restore the website and restore the website, even though it's completely not illegal to have this website. Uh, it did not violate any, any law in, uh, in China. Gosh, I mean, essentially it went against their censorship regime. 
And that's why your father was persecuted for it. Yes, the censorship is, uh, it's a its whole another level in China. Even if you write Winnie the Pooh in China, you will, you will get censored out. <laughs> what has the international community done to help the Uyghur people, particularly, you know, following your advocacy six years ago um, and, and the various numerous other advocates around the world who are trying to raise the profile of, of what's going on in that region? Just last week, uh, the, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act has passed the Senate. Um, and uh, hopefully next week it will pass the House, and then this Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act will be brought to the president's desk. Um, and also the European Parliament had given my father the Saharov Awards, which is one of the highest human rights award. Uh, I do believe this award was not only recognizing my father's work and what had happened to them, but it's also a recognition for the Uyghur people in order to acknowledge what happened to the Uyghurs and also it sends a gesture a note, a signal to to the Chinese government. I do know the uh, the government uh, leaders in in Western world have been reaching out to the Chinese government in order to uh, let them uh, release those people um, uh, from those camps. And there has last year at the UN General Assembly, Uyghur issues have been brought up. Um, right, also so gaining some traction. Yes. Yes, there there has been some uh some attention, but there's still room to to improve. Uh I do hope uh, there can be more actions can be done. Uh last year um the US government had um uh, blacklisted 26 Chinese government officials who support the camps and, uh, and also Chinese companies that benefits uh, from those concentration camps. And I think it's a wonderful idea. And I do hope there more countries can apply the same things. I'm not asking, uh, I have to state this very, very um, <laughs> firmly. Um, I'm not asking those government officials to to entirely block China, entirely um, blacklist China or, or stop cooperating with China. I know it's not realistic. And uh, also, I do know that it's, you know, the economy, it's a very important, especially during the pandemic, all the countries have been suffering a lot uh, because of the pandemic and it has affected the uh, economy strongly. So, but, but I strongly urge um, people can stop purchasing and cooperating mm-hmm. with those Chinese companies that actually supporting the concentration camps or benefiting from those concentration camps because you should not use the money that came from blood. Yeah, money that came from blood. Gosh, yes. um, do you know what these companies are? Can you give us an idea? Yeah, there, there are a few companies like Uniqlo, Nike, uh, Target used to purchase uh, cotton products from those uh, from the Uyghur region and which were made in those concentration camps. But once Target learned how those products were made, they stopped um, purchasing, stopped importing those goods from 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 those region. Which I I strongly encourage other companies to do the same thing. Also, Volkswagen was one of the company as well. Uh, there are also uh, H&M, um, there are also Muji, um, which was a brand that I really liked in the past. Now I only, uh, when I when I buy things, I try to buy things that are made in Vietnam or made in other countries instead of made in China, because when it's cotton product, it's almost confirmed that it's made in 
the concentration camps because um, majority of the cotton products in China are made in Uyghur region and mm-hmm. the Uyghur region is now functioning with the labor of the concentration camps. Wow. I don't know how much input you've had from your father about the conditions in the concentration camps, but can you give us any insight into what it's like to be in one of those re-education camps? Um, so since uh, a year and a half ago, I've been working on a documentary film um, with a group of award-winning filmmakers. Um, so I was uh, lucky enough to interview a few of the camp survivors Um According to their testimonies, all of them have shared mutual information uh, to me. So uh, all three of them that I have interviewed have faced um, indoctrination, abuse. Also, uh, they have witnessed rape. Also, they were fed with unknown medicine, refused to, to have uh, water, refused to have food. Um, also, for one of the camps Robert that I interviewed, um, did not have access to shower during the nine months of the detention. And she was bitten almost every single day and questioned every single day. She was asked to eat uh, unknown uh, medicine once a week. And that was the only time she was given water in order to swallow the medicine. Also, most of them, were sh- their heads were shaved um, And there were 20 to 40 detainees can be in one small room and they don't even have a place to sleep. They had to take turns. Um, 20 people stand against the wall and 20 people sleep on the ground next to each other. And every two hours they would take turns. And this is how, how they rest. It's, I remember when I heard, when I was interviewing those survivors, I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I, my hands were shaking just by hearing them. It hit me really hard because I was so afraid that this might be something that is happening to my father as well. Even though he's not in a concentration camp, he's in a prison room. Speaking of the camps um, in a bit more detail, do you know the demographics of the camps? Is it mainly uh, young people, old people? Is it families in there? Is it, you know, who, what sort of people are detained in the concentration hall all kinds of people um i do know there are professors intellectuals scholars um doctors soccer players singers um even comedians they've been taken away some farmers some random person on the street who is uh, selling fruits could be also taken away uh someone who has who has a passport, someone who has been to a foreign country, someone even who had never been outside of country, but who has a family member who had been to overseas could all, all, all be a, a reason for them to be locked up in a prison or in a concentration camp. It could be anyone. It doesn't matter what your age is. My, my cousin, she's only a few years older than me. She was arrested a few years ago for having my father's picture and um, his article, uh, in, in, in her phone and she was stopped at one of those checkpoints uh, on the street. Oh, just another uh, thing uh, that I wanted, to, information I want to share that every day there are checkpoints on the streets every few blocks. Um, there will be two to three uh, policemen sitting there with a desk and having a device on their hands. Um, they ask to collect your phones and install uh, tracking devices and, and those monitoring apps in their phones. 
um, if you refuse to do so, you can be arrested. And if you, if with those tracking devices or recording devices, monitoring devices, they found anything they consider it as suspicious, then you could be arrested. Some of the police, they just want, even they like the style of your phone, they like the newest edition of the iPhone, then they want your iPhone, they ask you to hand it in to them because they just simply want the phone. Um, and if you refuse to do so, they would consider you as someone who is suspicious and you could be sent to those one of those camps. Um, and my cousin was was stopped at one of those checkpoints and she was stopped to deliver her phone. Um, she refused to do so, but they insisted and found my father's article and his picture. And she was asked, why, why do you have these? And she answered, he's my uncle. And that was the reason she's sentenced for 10 years. Um, even though she was sentenced for 10 years, but she didn't go through a due process. Um, she didn't receive the due process and she didn't go through a trial. You can't even find her case number on the Chinese um, legal websites. And it's just, it, it's very common in the Uyghur region. It happens a lot with other Uyghur people. If they want to arrest you, you don't even have to go through a trial. You can be sentenced or just receive a note and you will be sentenced for a few years or be sent to a camp or sent to a factory to force be forced to work there. Wow. You mentioned this data collection strategy that they have, which is stopping you at checkpoints, taking your phone and extracting data from it, essentially. Yeah. Um, and you've also spoken a lot about the use of high-tech surveillance. In yes. um, can you tell us a bit about that and how it affects the, the Uyghur population in particular? Uh, first of all, there's the camera. Just one street, there can be more than 20 cameras. Uh, the Chinese government claims it's for safety reason. Um, but I, I think the true intention it is to monitor everyone's actions. Uh, it could even uh, recognize you even if you have a face mask on. Also, there are QR codes um, uh, being put in front of every family household's doors. Um, with those QR codes, the policemen can scan whatever information they want to have. When uh, every family members are required to scan those QR code when they enter and exit their apartment or their house. That's insane. Uh, is that as a result of coronavirus or is that just? No, no, it happened before the coronavirus. It's, it's been a while, it's happening for a while. It used to happen only in the Uyghur region, but now it's due to the coronavirus, the Chinese government, I, I, I had, in, in my perspective, I think it's the government is using, using the coronavirus as an excuse to start applying this, um, these uh, high-tech uh, surveillance uh, strategies towards everyone. The, the citizens can even refuse to do so. With those QR codes, um, not only the the time of you, your entrance can be shown, also the electricity usage, um, how many members are in your family, your ID numbers, your birthdays, your blood type, almost every personal information they can know about it. Wow. So, in I mean, in the wrong hands, that could be very, very dangerous. Yes, yes, and, yes. And... Presumably, if you disobey that and, you know, don't scan or don't get your guests to scan the QR code before entering your home, you'll just be sent to prison. Yeah, you get reported and you get sent to those uh, prison or 
camps or re-education center that they so so called re-education centers. Yeah. So you've mentioned that your father is actually in the prisons as opposed to the re-education camps. Are the conditions in the prisons similar or different in any way? The last time I heard of my father was 2017, so I don't know his current condition. Um, the family visits were banned since 2017, uh, even though according to the Chinese law, political prisoners are supposed to be allowed to be visited by their family members every month. But for my family, it was every three months in the beginning, and it was totally denied after 2017. So I don't know how he is and what type of condition he's living in. But before, when he was first arrested, he was denied for food twice. Each time lasted for 10 days. He lost about 40 pounds just a few first few months he was uh, arrested. Also, he was shackled. Um, Does that mean your stepmother, your brothers, etc., they haven't been able to see your father either? Yes, yes. They have not been able to see my father since 2017. Yeah. How are you coping in the U.S. all alone? <sighs> I'm a very lucky person. Um, when I first came here, I didn't speak English. I didn't know anybody. Then the person who who invited my father to the U.S. as a visiting scholar showed up and he helped me out. And he was the person who, who actually helped me getting into the U.S. I was stopped at the Chicago airport because of my father was not with me, according to the U.S. law, since my visa was the family member of um, the actual visiting scholar, um, I can only be legal to enter the country if my father is present, but my father was not. So the person who invited my father happened to work in the US government before. So he had lots of connections and he was able to let me enter the country. Um, and also I didn't speak English. So he was a professor at IU. He helped me register to the English program. He helped me with learning English. He helped me with adapting to the US life. And I met amazing friends when my father was first arrested. Um, obviously my father was not able to send me tuition or money. My friends gathered and and paid for my tuition, my English for my English program wow, for one semester. Amazing. Yes, so so I have to, I'm really blessed and lucky uh, to have amazing people show up in my life. I did return the money uh, just to, no, I just returned the money later on. But it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's, to it's, clarify. Yeah, just to clarify. Yes. So, what's life like in Indiana, where there are no QR codes? I imagine I'm not sure. I've never been to Indiana, but I imagine there aren't any QR codes outside, you know, your college dorm. Yeah, uh, I've moved to DC last summer, um, but mm -hmm. I spent almost six years in in Indiana. But life is definitely very different um, uh, uh, in Indiana because it's a it's a it's a very peaceful town. Uh, Bloomington is a very peaceful town in Indiana, and I was born and raised in Beijing, which is the capital city. It's a huge city. It's very different for sure. Um, but one thing that is uh, very different is going to school, being able to uh, speak freely in my class and being able to even criticize the government in my class. It's something very unfamiliar to me at that time uh, when I first came here. Yeah. Um, also, not having a not having a bugging device in my apartments also maybe I did have a bugging device in my Bloomington apartment maybe I didn't just didn't know but in in when I was in Beijing uh for a few years we had uh bugging devices in our uh kitchen 
in the the kitchen light so it could record whatever we were talking about gosh I, I have no doubt that you know after this podcast goes live that um the chinese government will find a way to listen to it too that'll be great oh, i hope they, oh, they they are listening they are listening uh, that's no doubt my laptop now it's has been hacked multiple times my phone everything has been hacked multiple times my social media accounts i can't count how many times it's been hacked my my laptop camera would constantly turn on by itself my mouse uh would move by itself it would suddenly open a page by itself and i did have experience of being monitored and reported by students uh, chinese students at indiana and in the beginning, I get really frustrated, but now I just, okay, let it go. Let them check it. Let them get it over with, get it over with. So they stop suspecting me for being a national spy or something like that. At the end of the day, you're just continuing your father's work to an extent and advocating for the weaker people, something that they're very well aware of. Um, so a lot of people say, are you walking the path your father walked? Uh, a lot of people ask me this question. Um, I completely disagree <laughs> because it's a different case. Um, my father chose to be on this path and he knew what he was getting himself into and he got stopped multiple times, but he continued. He's a much better person than I am for sure. Yeah. But I did not have a choice. Speaking up for my family, it's a duty it's a duty for being the daughter of my father. It's a duty of being the sister of my two little brothers. It's being, it's, it's my obligation, I feel like. I didn't have a choice. The Chinese government put me under the situation. Um, but with my dad, he knew what he was getting himself into. He had a backup plan. He could have chose to be the wealthy um, uh, businessman. He had companies before and he, he, he was teaching. He was a well-known economist. He knew he was going to prison. He knew he was going to get sentenced, but he did not stop. In one of his interviews, he said, I might be sentenced. I might be, I'm probably going to prison for 10 to 20 years, but I cannot stop. Um, if, if I have to sacrifice my safety and I can rescue the Uyghur people, I'm willing to do so. That's what my father said. Um, but for me, I'm not as a great person like my dad. I don't think I'm as brave enough. If I lived in, if I'm still living in China, I probably wouldn't be speaking up by now. Um, I probably wouldn't be doing all the advocacy work. I probably would choose a more peaceful, a normal life, just like other normal girls in their twenties. I probably would choose to go to, a, you know, a normal university and have a normal job, have a marry someone normal haven't just 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 like everyone else I probably wouldn't choose what I've been doing now um yeah so I mean you moved to Indiana did you ever think I'm just going to leave all of that behind I did think about that but uh thinking of my father being put in prison for a wrong reason if my father actually did what the government accused for what he was doing then Yes, I might not be speaking up right now, but I know my father so well. He's everything. He's completely not what the government said. And I know he's in prison for a wrong reason. And a person like him should not even stay, spend one day in prison. So that's why as a daughter, I can't let this happen to him. If I can't even, if I choose not to protect my family, I, I, I think 
I will feel so guilty and I can't face my future family when I have a family in the future. I can't even face my future children or my grandchildren. I feel too guilty for that. Yeah, I think, you know, I really admire how honest you've been about the fact that, no, this was not my life's calling. I was dropped <laughs> into this situation and I'm doing it because it's a sense of duty and you would feel eternal guilt if you didn't do it. So to sort of wrap this up, my question would be, for young people around the world or, you know, young professionals, those starting up in their careers in the human rights world, what can they do? What sort of advice can you, Johar, give them to get involved um, in this fight against the persecution of the Uyghur people? Um, a lot of people think they're not powerful enough to make a change or just to do anything they think oh I received lots of messages uh, from strangers said oh I feel so bad for you I'm so sorry but then they move on they heard the story and they move on they don't do anything because they think they can't really do anything but in fact there's so many things can be done just uh, just for example the bill few years ago nobody in the government even heard of I cannot say nobody but a lot majority of the people didn't even know who Uyghurs are they didn't know Uyghurs existed and now there's a bill that helps the Uyghur people. So, and how did this even happen? Because there were 10, hundred thousands of people wrote to the government, signed the petitions and, and called the government representatives just to, to ask the governments to take actions. I guess where I am in the UK, it would be a matter of calling up your MP. Yes, um, yes, exactly. Matter. Yeah taken to parliament just the same way it happened in america and it was taken to congress yes yes exactly also um uh you can write letters um to not only the governments also ngos think tanks uh, ask them to host events to introduce who the uyghurs are um also um write to the UN, doesn't matter what country you're from, you can write to the UN. Uh, you can donate to the fundraising events or those NGOs that are working on to help the Uyghur people. There are Uyghur Human Rights Project. It's a wonderful NGO based on researches. Also, the, the documentary film I've been working on, uh, we've been trying to uh, raise some funds. There's so many ways uh, you can help. Just if, if there are students that said, oh, we don't have money, it doesn't matter. You can help sharing those links to to your friends you can help sharing information you can post on instagram we all love instagram we all love facebook <laughs> we all love twitter just write something and then your friends will will read about it and people have they don't realize how important their words are words are so powerful why you can tell by how how many people have been arrested around the globe by their governments just because they spoke up why because the government knows the government knows how powerful words can be i mean and it's such a privilege for us to be able to do that without exactly. the risk of going to jail exactly yeah gosh this is this has been a really inspiring conversation and at the end, you know, we're coming to the end of it. And all I can think is I really hope you're reunited with your father and the rest of your family one day soon enough. And oh, the same with, I hope so too. Thank and you. And the same with the million other Uyghurs who are out there. Yes, yes. Once again, Joho, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. You'll recall that Johar spoke about a bill which had passed through Congress with overwhelming support from Republicans and Democrats. 
Since recording this podcast, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, as it's called, has now been signed into law by President Trump. This bill authorises the use of US sanctions against Chinese officials responsible for the detention and persecution of the Uyghurs. Albeit this is a significant moment which will no doubt send a strong message to China, there remains a long way to go. Now, here are some ways you can get involved and help in this fight. Write to your government representatives. Your voice is powerful and elected officials have a responsibility to listen to it. Support NGOs working to end the persecution faced by the Uyghur population. Equally important is that you share this information. Without raising awareness about the plight of the people enduring the suffering described by Johar, it's impossible to bring about that necessary change. Please raise awareness. You can learn more about Johar's campaign from her Twitter page, at Johar Ilham, and also her Instagram page, at Johar, with three R's at the end. Finally, do check out the film which Johar spoke about, which comes out next year. Storytelling is one of the most powerful ways through which we can raise awareness and mobilise those in power for action and accountability. Her team needs help raising the funds to produce this film, so if you can, head over to the GoFundMe page and donate whatever you can. In the article attached to this podcast, you'll find everything that I've just mentioned, so please do check it out. A massive thank you to Annabelle Hazlitt and Laura Gallup for their help in producing this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please share it with your friends, families and colleagues and find us Human Rights Pulse on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram and let us know your thoughts. Stay well and stay safe till the next inspiring conversation at Human Rights Pulse. Thank you.